0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And if this is the first time you're joining us, we're in the middle of a trek through the gospel according to Matthew, looking particularly at the five extended sermons Jesus preached on his way to the cross. Jesus' five sermons, the first of which was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what we considered at length in a series we called Upside-Down Kingdom. Then we looked at Jesus' second sermon and what we called Jesus' Upside-Down Mission. And today we'll be considering the third and what we're going to call Jesus' Upside-Down Family. Jesus' upside-down kingdom that drives his upside-down mission, by which he establishes his upside-down family. And this family is what this third sermon, found in Matthew 13, is all about. And what we're going to focus our attention on today. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, where we're going to pick up in verse 24. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would speak to us through your word, encourage our hearts, lift our spirits, and set our eyes on your Son, the work that he's done on our behalf and the work that he continues to do through us on behalf of this world. And in his name, we pray you'd soon bring that work to completion. Amen. Blood runs thicker than water. Or so the saying goes, typically as a way to justify the fact that family always comes first. And that blood relations outweigh those forged by choice. Blood relations, whether with the Winslows from Family Matters or with the family business of the mafia. Family comes first. Why? because these are the ties that bind because blood runs thicker than water. You know, though, for some time now, etymologists have questioned whether that's the meaning of that phrase, blood runs thicker than water. And in fact, some have gone so far as to suggest that, that that phrase means the precise opposite of how it's commonly been used. So that rather than elevate relationships built on bloodlines alone, the saying actually means that the relationships you choose for yourself are much more likely to outweigh the ones you don't. Thus, the original saying, they argue, was not blood is thicker than water, but rather that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb which is saying something quite different, isn't it? And seems to me to be precisely Jesus' point in Matthew 13. In this third sermon he preaches, focused in on his upside-down family. Let me explain, though, why I think family is really the focus here in Matthew 13, Because if you were just to to copy and paste this third sermon and to print it out, removed from its context within Matthew, that's probably not the conclusion that you'd come to on your own. After all, it's just a series of parables spoken to the crowds and explained to the disciples about the kingdom of heaven. What does that have to do with family? But if you read that same sermon within the context of Matthew, this focus on family really comes to the fore, and in fact, frames the sermon as a whole. With the expansion of Jesus' mission in Matthew, many by this point had come to believe that he was the Christ, the coming king. But others had been quite offended by him, and the offense culminates in the end of chapter 12, when his mother and brothers coming to speak to him, presumably to dissuade him from the insanity of claiming to be that king anymore. Jesus' response, though, is quite telling, because rather than caving to the familial pressure being put on him, he rather redefines the family bounds. Saying in verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And it says, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's on one end of the sermon, and the point is driven home when immediately after that third sermon, we read of Jesus coming to his hometown and being rejected because of his family. So that when Jesus teaches in the synagogue there, the townies all ask, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Which drives Jesus to make the very sad pronouncement that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, with his own family, You see, the sermon is framed by family and the question of who is and isn't part of Jesus' family. So that the sermon itself is really meant and has to be read as Jesus' explanation of what being or not being a part of his upside down family is all about. And if we were to walk through each of the seven parables included in that sermon, we'd be able to see just that. Parables were were just comparisons drawn between the life experiences of an audience and and the issue at hand. And each of these parables fills out in its own way what being or not being a part of Jesus' upside-down family is all about. But today I just want to focus in on one of those parables, what's often been called the parable of the weeds. and encourage you to go through and to to even read the rest on your own through this lens of, of what being or not being a part of Jesus' family is all about. But let's look together now at this parable of the weeds, which Jesus picks up in verse 24. And what I want to do here is just look briefly at the parable Jesus tells and the explanation he provides. For some parables, Jesus doesn't give an explanation. We're just sort of left to figure them out on our own within, within their individual contexts. For this one, though, he gives an explanation. And so again, we'll look at the parable he tells and the explanation he provides. And we'll begin with the parable Jesus tells, which we find in verses 24 to 30, where we're told that Jesus put another parable before them, that is, before the crowd that he had gathered around him, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat." And went away. So Jesus says, when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. It's a story about a wealthy landowner and, and the day laborers who worked for him, who together sow into the landowner's field good seed. But while they're asleep that night, probably recovering from the manual labor of a, of a hard day's work, because remember, there's no tractors back then, there's no John Deere or anything like that. It's all backbreaking work. But while they're asleep, an enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. This enemy, probably a rival farmer looking to destroy the crop of his competitor either to limit the local supply and and therefore hike up the demand for his own harvest, or maybe just out of spite. Either way, though, seeking to destroy the crop of his competitor. How? By sowing bad seed among the good. By sowing weeds among the wheat. Which, as petty as it sounds, wasn't all that unheard of in Jesus' day. Kind of crazy, but it was common enough that Rome even had a law against it. And for good reason, because the weed sown here was most likely a weed known as darnel. Lollium temulentum was known in some places as false wheat. A mimic weed that grows up alongside wheat and, and at least early on is indistinguishable from wheat. But that if harvested with the wheat, could turn that staple of life into a sentence to death. Why? Because Darnell is poisonous. An intoxicant that that not only will devastate a field, but can potentially turn even the fruit of that field deadly. So we read in verse 27 that the servants understandably come to the master in the house concerned and say to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? The master, though, is not as mystified as they are. He knows he has an enemy and therefore knows exactly where the weeds came from. And so he says, an enemy has done this. The question then posed by the servants in response is this. Then do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to go and walk the field and root out the weeds before they put the wheat in jeopardy? The master's reply, though, is, is no. No, lest in, in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, the master says. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. He says you got to wait till the harvest. Why? Not because nothing is to be done, but because if you try to root out the weeds before then, you'll very likely unintentionally root out the wheat as well. And there was a reason for that, because the roots of each, by the time the two had germinated and could be distinguished from one another, by that time, their roots were already intertwined. And whatever risk there was to letting the bad seed grow alongside the good, the greater risk would be to, in the process of weeding the field, lose the wheat entirely. So wait, the master says, till the weeds can be bundled and burned when the weed is ready to be gathered into the barn. That's the parable Jesus tells of a wealthy landowner and his day laborers trying to make the best of a bad situation. Next, though, let's take a look at the explanation Jesus provides. Which is found a bit later in chapter 13, after Jesus has turned from speaking publicly to the crowds to addressing more privately his disciples. He told a few smaller parables before that private audience with his closest followers. So that the explanation for this, this one, the one about the weeds, about the, the wheat and the, the tares, as, as it's sometimes called, is found only after his disciples in verse 36 are said to have come to Jesus saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And this is what Jesus says. He starts out by identifying what each element of the parable represents. Not identifying everything, but a good chunk of what's found there. Beginning in verse 37, saying, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Jesus says the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, i.e. Jesus. Son of man being his favorite title for himself. Taken from the apocalyptic visions of the Old Testament, in which an individual known as the son of man would show up riding on the clouds to carry out God's work in God's world. And the work here pictured as the sowing of good seed. Jesus is the one who sows, and the world is his field, the place where the good seed is sown. Notice, though, that Jesus then identifies the good seed as the sons of the kingdom, as the children of the kingdom, as the family of the king, which is different from what he says the Son of Man sows elsewhere. In the more famous parable Jesus tells earlier in chapter 13 of the four different types of ground into which the son of man sows do you remember it the seed is identified there as the word of the kingdom not the sons of the kingdom but the word of the kingdom and the good as the good news the the gospel spoken into us Here, though, Jesus is apparently making the point that those who've heard that gospel, that good news of the kingdom and his king, and who have themselves borne the fruit of the kingdom, that they're then sown into this world to speak that good news themselves and to live it out that it might bear more fruit. Sown to be sown harvested to be sown again the issue of course is that the son of man is not the only one sowing seed even though the field is very much his he's the landowner still there's that enemy identified by jesus as the devil himself who sows seeds of his own the children of the evil one those who at least early on can look deceptively like the children of the kingdom but who in the end bring death rather than life. These are sown into that same field, so that the picture here is of two families competing for the same real estate. Two families spreading out over the face of this world in the name of their opposing fathers. Wheat and weeds, good and evil, growing up together and awaiting the harvest. Which Jesus says is the end of the age. At which time, the harvesters, the reapers, identified by Jesus as the angels of God, will finally separate these two families for good. Which is the real point of this parable, and is really its unique contribution to our understanding of what being or not being a part of Jesus' family. Is all about. That though these two families inhabit the same world today, they will not inhabit the same world for always. And being a part of one family or the other is just as much about where you're headed as it is about where you begin, just as much about the destination as it is about the point of departure. Because the children of the kingdom, the children of the king are headed to a drastically different place than the children of the evil one. After all, that's where Jesus takes it. When in verse 40, he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. When Jesus says, The Son of Man, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom, out of this world, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace so that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. At the end of the age when the roots of the weeds and the wheat are finally untangled, when the children of the king no longer have to vie with the children of his enemy. That's the parable Jesus tells, and the explanation he provides. Which leaves just one question. To which family do you belong? To the family of the king or to the family of his enemy? You know, the sad picture painted in the Bible is that we are all born through the waters of the womb into the family destined for the fire. Each of us, like our father, the devil, sown into this world to do our worst, bent on destruction and death. Here's how the apostle Paul describes it, saying you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's where we all start, through the waters of the womb, as part of the family destined for the fire. But thank God, hidden beneath this parable, he's made a way for weeds to become wheat. Through the blood of a covenant that runs thicker than the waters of the womb. The blood of Jesus spilled in our place that washes us clean and gives us new life. Through the good news of the king and his kingdom that calls us to a life of faith and bears in us the fruit of the kingdom so that those of us who are born again as children of the kingdom might be sown into this world to expand the kingdom and then raised to reign with Jesus in the kingdom forevermore. And if you don't already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd invite you right now To lay down your life as a child of his enemy. And to instead put your faith in him. To trust him as your only hope. And to follow him as you ought. To not rest in the family you were born into. But to choose today the family of the king. And if you're already a part of that family. Let me encourage you. To prioritize it above all others. Why? Well, for one, because the blood of the covenant is supposed to be run thicker than the water of the womb. For another, though, because the hope for our blood relatives, or anybody for that matter, is in their being reborn under the blood of that covenant as well. Many of us live with the heartache of watching those we love most live apart from God. And the temptation at times is to minimize the distinction between the family of the king and the family of his enemy. The problem, of course, is that minimizing the distinction between wheat and weeds just for the sake of the weeds doesn't get them closer to God. It only gets us further away. Which is why as hard as it is, those of us who are part of God's family must prioritize that family above all others. It was just this week before I started in on this sermon that Emmett and I, my 10-year-old son, were out together talking about all life's temptations for some reason. And the question came up what would we do if the other one walked away from Jesus? And in the quiet of that moment, I said, Emmett, if you ever do, I hope you know that I will never stop loving you. And I will never stop pursuing you. But I also will never follow you. And I hope if it's me, you do the same. Why? Because my hope, if I ever walk away from the faith, is not someone fudging the lines for God on my behalf, but of finding myself headed for the fire and knowing I've somehow found myself as part of the wrong family. So despite the heartache of watching those we love the most live their lives apart from God, let me encourage you that if you are a part of the family of God, not to fudge the lines on their behalf. This world is divided between weeds and wheat. And by grace, God has made a way underneath this parable for the weeds to become wheat. But it is not by mixing the definition and lessening what it means to be wheat. It is by the blood sacrifice of his Son. And those weeds, hearing the good news of the gospel hearing it, taking it to heart and turning from their wicked ways from being part of the family of God's enemy just like we all have and turning to become part of the family of God himself. So let me encourage you as hard as it is hold the line hold the line for the sake of those who need to cross it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that being a part of your family is not based on bloodlines, but on the blood sacrifice of your son Jesus. That in that, all the, the the disunity of our world has been undone. And you have provided the place that we might be united as one, as one family under Him. I pray that in Him we would find ourselves part of the family of God through faith in what He's done on our behalf, the shedding of His blood on the cross, dying in our place that we might live. Amen.